0: from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. So on the morning of June 24th, 2016, British citizens woke up stunned. Almost no one and certainly none of the polls predicted the majority of them would support Brexit.
4: How do you feel about Britain leaving the EU? I'm quite shocked to be honest. I thought we all would have stayed in. I do not think anyone really believed that UK voters would decide to Um, Brexit. I feel quite shocked by the result. To be honest, I was quite shocked. I feel quite scared today. I don't know how I feel. I think
0: we're. I remember that morning. I happened to be in London. And the question a lot of people were asking was why? Why did it happen? And why did almost no one predict it? And these were also the questions journalist Carol Cadwallader asked when she went to a small town in Wales.
4: It was years since I'd been to Ebervale. It's a very historic, very, you know, real labor, left-wing heartland. That town, Ebervale,
0: voted overwhelmingly in favor of leaving the EU. And Carol wanted to
4: understand why. And I went down, there's this lower part of the town which is where the steel plant used to be. And it was the biggest steel plant in the world, right up until it was the 80s, I think. And you just have no idea now. It looked like, you know, it was a kind of little Manhattan down there, these sort of incredible architecture-designed glass and steel buildings, and all around these signs saying paid for by the European Union.
0: Carol Cadwallader picks up the story from the TED stage.
4: I had this sort of weird sense of unreality walking around the town and it came to a head when I met this young man in front of the sports centre and he told me that he had voted to leave because the European Union had done nothing for him. He was fed up with it and all around town people told me the same thing and they told me that they were most fed up with the immigrants and with the refugees, they'd had enough. Which was odd, because walking around, I didn't meet any immigrants or refugees. And when I checked the figures, I discovered that Ebby actually has one of the lowest rates of immigration in the country. And so I was just a bit baffled, because I couldn't really understand where people were getting their information from. But then after the article came out, this woman got in touch with me. And uh, she was from Ebby and she told me about all this stuff that she'd seen on Facebook. I was like, what stuff? And she said it was all this quite scary stuff about immigration, especially about Turkey. So I I tried to find it, but there was nothing there, because there's no archive of ads that people'd seen or what had been pushed into their newsfeeds. No trace of anything. It'd gone completely dark. Because only you see your newsfeed, and then it's Vanishes, so it's impossible to research anything. So we have no idea who saw what ads, or what impact they had, or what data was used to target these people, or even who placed the ads, or how much money was spent, or even what nationality they were. But Facebook does. Facebook has these answers, and it's refused to give them to us. Our parliament. Has asked Mark Zuckerberg multiple times to come to Britain and to give us these answers. And every single time he's refused. And you have to wonder why. Because what I and other journalists have uncovered is that multiple crimes took place during the referendum. And they took place on Facebook. It's because in Britain we limit the amount of money that you can spend in an election. And it's because in the 19th century, people would walk around with, like, literally wheelbarrows of cash and just buy voters. So we passed these strict laws to stop that from happening. But those laws don't work anymore. This referendum took place almost entirely online. And you can spend any amount of money on Facebook or on Google or on YouTube ads, and nobody will know because they're black boxes. And this is what happened before the Brexit vote. We are what happens to a Western democracy when a hundred years of electoral laws are disrupted by technology. And it's that technology that got Carol wondering.
0: How many people might have been misled, even manipulated into voting a certain way because of Facebook ads? Ads that were designed to trigger certain emotions among voters. So Carol started to dig deeper. And over the next two years, She'd come to a very worrying conclusion about technology companies like Facebook and Twitter, and even Google.
4: You know, this is a massive global online experiment going on right now. And it's being conducted by some of the, if not the smartest people in the world who are being employed, paid huge salaries to come up with new and novel ways to hook us and addict us and draw us in and make us click. I mean, it's old-fashioned corporate greed. Mm. These highly motivated billionaires are hiring, you know, the smartest people to find new ways of manipulating us. Every day, every second, trillions
0: of bits of data about you, me, everyone you know are being collected every time we click a link or even scroll through a social media newsfeed. And all that information allows some of the biggest technology companies to build a highly detailed profile of who you are, what triggers you, how to hook you in, and ultimately, how your behavior can be shifted. It's very possible that who we vote for, what we buy, what we believe, even what we see with our own eyes, are more susceptible to manipulation today than ever before in modern history. So on the show today... We're going to explore ideas around the power of digital technology to manipulate our decisions and ways to prevent it from becoming an even bigger problem.
4: This is a really profound revolution in the way that we consume information. And I think it's really difficult to understand this massive historical change when you're in the middle of it, when you're, you can't see it. It's, it. You know, it is like the sun. It's too big to see. I don't have to tell you that hate and fear are being sown online all across the world. But we only see a tiny amount of what's going on on the surface. And I only found out anything about this dark underbelly because I started looking into a company called Cambridge Analytica. And I spent months tracking down an ex-employee, Christopher Wiley, And he told me how this company that worked for both Trump and Brexit had profiled people politically in order to understand their individual fears, to better target them with Facebook ads. And it did this by illicitly harvesting the profiles of 87 million people from Facebook. The company is owned by Robert Mercer, the billionaire who bankrolled Trump. And he threatened to sue us multiple times to stop us from publishing. But we finally got there, and we were one day ahead of publication. We got another legal threat. Not from Cambridge Analytica this time, but from Facebook. It told us that if we published, they would sue us. We did it anyway. Facebook... You were on the wrong side of history in that. And you were on the wrong side of history in this, in refusing to give us the answers that we need. And that is why I am here, to address you directly, the gods of Silicon Valley. Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg and Larry Page and Sergey Brin and Jack Dorsey, and your employees and your investors, too. This technology that you have invented has been amazing. But now it's a crime scene, and you have the evidence. And it is not enough to say that you will do better in the future. Because to have any hope of stopping this from happening again, we have to know the truth.
0: Carol, if you had a chance to um, to sit down with, with Mark Zuckerberg or, or some of these other founders, and they had to answer your questions, what is it that you would want to know f- from them? Like, what are the things that they would need to say?
4: I, I want to know how they can live with this, how they cannot be taken an axe to, you know, what is currently going on internally. yeah, I want to sort of see that they recognise on a human level what is going because they show no sign of it. The other thing about it is, is that, you know, in my TED talk, I showed these advertisements, which had been on Facebook. Yeah, We got those after a sort of battle royale the par- our parliament had with Facebook, and then they eventually handed some of them over. But in the States, What's remarkable is you know even less about what happened in your presidential election than we do, hmm. and, and it's at the scale of what happened in the U.S. is so much bigger, so much more money which was spent, so much more sophisticated modelling. We know nothing about it, and, and you know, and meanwhile the U.S. is careering towards the next election. This is not democracy spreading lies in darkness. It's subversion. And it is not about left or right or leave or remain or Trump or not. It's about whether it's actually possible to have a free and fair election ever again. Because as it stands, I don't think it is. And so my question to you is, is this what you want? Facebook, is this how you want history to remember you? as the handmaidens to authoritarianism that is on the rise all across the world. Because you set out to connect people, and you are refusing to acknowledge that this same technology is now driving us apart. And my question to everybody else is, is this what we want? To let them get away with it and to sit back and play with our phones as this darkness falls. Democracy is not guaranteed, and it is not inevitable. And we have to fight, and we have to win, and we cannot let these tech companies have this unchecked power. It's up to us, you, me, and all of us. We are the ones who have to take back control.
0: That's Carol Kenwaller. She writes for The Guardian and The Observer. You can find her full talk at TED.com. On the show today, ideas about digital manipulation. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who helped make this podcast possible. First, to Smart Water. Smart Water is on a mission to add fresh thinking to the world through thoughtful innovation. That's why they created two new ways to hydrate. The Smart Water Alkaline with 9 plus pH helps keep you hydrated while you're on the move. And Smart Water Antioxidant with added selenium helps find balance for your body and mind. But they didn't stop there. Now you can order Smart Water by saying, Alexa, order Smart Water. Yourself will thank you yourself. Smart water? That's pretty smart. Thanks also to Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Imagine how it feels to have an award-winning team of mortgage experts make the home buying process smoother for you. With a history of industry-leading online lending technology, Rocket Mortgage is changing the game. Visit rocketmortgage.com ideas. Jessica?
1: Equal housing lender licensed in all 50 states. NMLSconsumeraccess.org number 3030. Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Push button, get mortgage.
3: Next time on Rough Translation, the feeling you get when you quit your job and try to start something new. You're a loser, you're worthless. An entrepreneur from Mexico faces down that taboo and accidentally launches a global community that celebrates stories of failure.
4: The mistakes I was making
3: was part of my journey. Travel with Rough Translation from NPR. Listen and
0: subscribe. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about digital manipulation. Alright, let me let me ask you about Kayla. Um tell me tell me what, what
2: is what is Kayla? Tell me about Kayla. <laughs> so Kayla, I would say, was an internet connected doll.
4: Kayla knows millions of
2: things The children can talk to the doll. How do
1: you make a cake?
2: Mix eggs,
1: flour, milk. And butter. the doll
2: wow. would use speak recognition technology and answer the child's questions. My friend Kayla talks, <laughs> listens to you, plays games with you, and knows millions of things. And because Kayla talks
0: to you and listens to you and knows millions of things, Finn Meerstadt, who is the director of digital policy at the Norwegian Consumer Council, wanted to see how easily Kayla could be hacked.
2: We decided to investigate or look at this doll more closely, and what we discovered was that it had very little security, so anyone within Bluetooth range or within a certain distance could basically connect to the doll through their phones and initiate the two-way conversation. Hi, my name is Kayla. What is yours? Uh, Finn. On the TED stage, you do this, you bring out
0: a colleague who from like backstage is talking to you through Kayla and and presumably could talk to a child in their bedroom. Is your mom
2: close by? No, she's in the store.
0: Uh, Do you want to come out and play with me?
2: That's a great idea.
0: Uh, great.
2: It's totally weird. Yeah, yeah. And it's completely, of course, unacceptable. And uh, what made this story worse was that it was a label on the on on the packaging saying that this was an internet-safe doll uh, when it really had no safety or security precautions in it whatsoever.
0: Now, did Kayla, like, also listen in on, on the
2: things people were telling her and then using that information? Well, we read the terms and conditions that no one reads. And in there, the the company um, reserved the right to use the voice recordings of the child and use it for targeted advertisement, for example. But because we don't have any protections when it comes to data or when it comes to security, Um, The market is flooded with um, insecure products and products which has a business model of selling our data. And and that really decreases trust, and um, it it leaves people completely uh, apathetic to this.
0: Okay, so Kayla might sound like an extreme example of a tech company acting irresponsibly. But is it really? Is it an anomaly? Because when you unwrap Kayla and install the companion app, There is a user agreement.
2: So we read also the terms and conditions that no one reads.
0: The terms and conditions that no one reads. Finn Mirstad continues the story from the TED stage.
2: Like most of you, I have dozens of apps on my phone. And used properly, they can make our lives easier, more convenient, and maybe even healthier. But have we been lulled into a false sense of security? It starts simply by ticking a box. Yes, we say... I've read the terms, but have you really read the terms? Are you sure they didn't look too long? And the last time you tried, they were impossible to understand, and you needed to use the service now. And now the power imbalance is established because we have agreed to our personal information being gathered and used on a scale we could never imagine. This is why my colleagues and I decided to take a deeper look at this. We set out to read the terms on popular apps on an average phone and to show the world how unrealistic it is to expect consumers to actually read the terms. We printed them more than 900 pages and sat down in our office and read them out loud ourselves.
1: Angry Birds Terms of Service. The following terms of service and
2: end-user license agreement streaming the experiment live on our websites took quite a long time. This EU took us 31 hours, 49 minutes, and 11 seconds to read the terms on an average phone. That is longer than a movie marathon of the Harry Potter movies and the Godfather movies combined. And reading is one thing. Understanding is another story. That would have taken us much, much longer.
0: But this isn't just about like a creepy doll or or like how incredibly frustrating and and unrealistic it is to have to read hundreds of pages of of user agreements. I mean, all of this data collected on us, I mean, companies can and, and do use it in some really, you know, sleazy ways, right?
2: Yeah, and what we're seeing increasingly is that this data can also be used to discriminate people. You won't see an ad because you're, uh, for some reason, put in a high-risk category. We know that housing ads have not been shown to people of a certain ethnic minority, for example, so you can discriminate based on ethnicity. And we know that job ads have not been shown to people living within a certain zip code or or with a certain profile. Uh, We know that um, this data can be used to determine whether you're a risky consumer or not so access to your uh, to credit can be a problem and you won't even know because it will just be a computer giving you a price or denying you access to a service and you won't know why
0: Finn, every single one of us right we download apps and we go to certain pages and oftentimes we give consent without thinking about it for a variety of reasons because we're, we're out of time or we're in a hurry whatever it might be But then these technology companies, their response is, well, listen, we warned you. We gave you all of the information. You made a decision to opt in. But that's actually such an infuriatingly disingenuous response.
2: Yeah, I would, I would agree to that because, for example, let's use Facebook as an example. It's the world's most popular social network. And if you want to stay in touch with your friends, for most people, that's how you do it, either through Facebook or Instagram, which is also owned by Facebook. Sure. Um, so we have to also keep in mind that most people have lots of other things to worry about. They have to go to work. They have to buy food that is safe and good. And uh, they have to take their kids to, to, to football practice. Um, so taking these very complicated decisions that could have detrimental effects in the long term, uh, in the short term, we are not really equipped <laughs> psychologically to take that uh, into consideration. I can't help but think that that
0: a capitalist model makes this an impossible problem to solve because data is so valuable. It is increasingly important to these companies' bottom lines
2: and to their, their market capitalization. How, what what why would they possibly give give this up no and and probably they won't unless there is actually external pressure and i think that's probably where you know the we, the citizens, can can make a difference to to tell our decision makers, our politicians, that we care about this, that we, we don't want this to be an individual choice. And I think this should be regulated the same way we regulated the environment, the water, um, uh, big oil companies, tobacco, and all of these things.
0: I mean, Google and Facebook, this is their bread and butter. They control a huge percentage of the digital head market. How could they change their business model to, you know, to continue to make money if that's the, obviously their, their priority and their responsibility to their shareholders?
2: Well, I, I think there is a discussion now whether you could, for example, serve contextual ads where you actually don't need to collect any data about the user, where based on which website you're on, you'll see ads that would be relevant to users of that website. I would happily use Facebook, and if they asked me every beginning of every month or beginning of every year, what things are you interested in? What would you like to see of ads? And it was my choice to say, I'm interested in sports, I'm interested in news, and you don't need to track me to in order to know that. You, I will actually willingly be telling them that.
0: I mean, the, the companies argue... Look, we're targeting people because it's better for their lives. It improves their lives. It's more efficient. It gives them opportunities to buy the things they need. We need this data to make, uh, you know, to offer a better experience for consumers. They genuinely believe that what they're doing is is for the greater good.
2: Yeah, I, I've I've also heard that, and I also see that when I meet with these companies, there's a lot of really good and smart people working at these big tech companies, but. What I feel is that they are not at all, or the corporate culture, the the company's structures are not open for scrutiny. They are not open for transparency. Um, And they say, trust us. Uh, We will have your best interests in mind. And I think with all these privacy scandals, people are losing trust. And these companies are becoming increasingly more unpopular. But because they have such a strong, strong grip on the markets, I would call them monopolies, it's really hard for consumers to to vote with their feet because they have nowhere else to go.
0: That's Finn Meerstadt. He's Director of Digital Policy at the Norwegian Consumer Council. You can see his full talk at TED.com. On the show today, ideas about digital manipulation. And as Finn Meerstadt was just saying, we as consumers may not have a lot of choice when we're dealing with these massive companies, but just how massive are they?
5: Well, I'll give you some specific examples. In a 12-month period from June of 17 to, I think, June of 18, Amazon added to its market capitalization the value of the entire CPG industry. This is Scott Galloway, professor of marketing NYU Stern School of Business.
0: And that phrase that he just used? The entire CPG industry. Means consumer packaged goods. So we're talking Nestle, Tyson Foods, Pepsi. So you could take every consumer product sold globally. Nike, Unilever,
5: Procter Gamble. and Gamble. We're talking about companies Unilever and P&G that have been around for decades. 3M,
0: L'Oreal, Kraft, Heinz. Not generations. Adidas, General Mills, Hershey. If not centuries. Mattel, Anheuser Busch, Philip Morris. That have unbelievably
5: robust consumer brands, global reach, credible supply chain, and Amazon added the entire value of. That. That industry in a 12-month period. Amazon is
0: doing fine. Maybe headed for
3: global dominance. The stock is now up 2%. They're becoming a
1: profit machine.
0: You are seeing their profits increase. And it's not just Amazon. In his TED talk, Scott focused on the three other behemoth companies that, with Amazon, make up the big four. They are Apple, Facebook, and Google. So what does it mean that these companies are so big and so good at manipulating, well, almost every part of our lives? Here's Scott Galloway's take from the TED stage.
5: These four companies, at the end of the Great Recession, the market capitalization of these companies was equivalent to the GDP of Niger. Now it is equivalent to the GDP of India, having blown past Russia and Canada in 13 and 14. There are only five nations that have a GDP greater in the combined market capitalization of these four firms. Amazon has become so powerful in the m- marketplace it can conduct Jedi mind tricks, it can begin damaging other industries just by looking at it. Nike announces they're distributing on Amazon, their stock goes up, every other footwear stock goes down. When Amazon's stock goes up, the rest of retail stocks go down because they assume what's good for Amazon is bad for everybody else. They cut the cost. On salmon, 33% when they acquire Whole Foods. In between the time they announced the acquisition of Whole Foods and when it closed, Kroger, the largest pure play grocer in America, shed a third of its value because Amazon purchased a grocer one-eleventh the size of Kroger.
0: When we talk about the four big companies, right, Let's put this into a historical context. Um, are we are we kind of living through a similar period in history where you had like the railroad barons and the oil barons and the finance barons, the Rockefellers, the Carnegies, the Crockers? The, is that the world we're living in today?
5: Yeah, we've been to this movie before. And history may not repeat itself, but it rhymes. And this definitely rhymes with periods when companies have concentrated or through excellent execution, macro environment, luck, whatever you want to call it, become an invasive species. And that is... Small companies have a difficult time getting out of the crib. Large companies are kind of euthanized prematurely and large companies tend to be great employers and good taxpayers. What's different about this era is that we seem to have lost the script around antitrust and that is with the railroads, telcos, the aluminum companies, the Seven Sisters, the oil companies. We decided to move in and break them up, and we had, quote-unquote, a class traitor, in that. Is, a lot of people think the, the railroad money elected Teddy Roosevelt, a Republican, but he was willing to go in and say, I love you guys, thanks for getting me in the office, but I'm now breaking you up because we need to oxygenate the economy. But we have been to these levels of concentration before. Whose fault is it? It's our fault. We're electing regulators who don't have the backbone to actually go after these companies. Amazon only needs one person for two at Macy's. If they grow their business $20 billion this year, which they will, we will lose 53,000 cashiers and clerks. This is nothing unusual. This has happened all through our economy. We've just never seen companies this good at it. That's one Yankee stadium of workers. It's even worse than media. Facebook and Google grow their business $22 billion this year, which they will. We're going to lose approximately 150,000 creative directors, planners, and copywriters. Or we can fill up two and a half Yankee stadiums and say, you are out of work courtesy of Amazon.
0: When it comes to to Google or, or Amazon or Facebook or even Apple, how much do we control our interaction with those platforms and how much are we controlled by our interaction with those platforms.
5: So, look, every time you light up a cigarette, you're making a conscious choice. But the question is, at some point, do you become so uh, biologically addicted to nicotine? Does the organization require scrutiny around what it's doing to addict you? And power corrupts. And when you're a monopoly and you're Facebook, and the worst that's gonna happen to you is a fine that's equivalent of seven days income or seven weeks of cash flow and maybe some public shaming, you're always gonna find a reason not to figure it out. The NRA has never been able to connect the sale of assault weapons with the murder of children. The big tobacco was never able to connect tobacco with cancer. Big tech is never gonna connect the underlying algorithms of their companies and the lack of security and the lack of human discretion and screening of their Mm content with a division or serious division in our culture the weaponization of these platforms to clear our elections or teen depression they will never make that connection on their own because when it's
0: raining money it blurs your vision see i i think the thing about these big companies that really worries me is how much i feel manipulated by by them and i don't and it's not that i want to blame them because i am making choices i am deciding to use these platforms and to check on Facebook or Twitter or buying things on Amazon because it's easy. Mm-hmm. You know like that's the part of it that really bothers me M- more than the sort of the economic cost of it which is obviously a problem. It's it's the personal cost it's how it sort of changes and has changed our behavior. 100%. And I would
5: argue that if you're going to look at price at some point if we end up with a group of people who can all have Netflix, all have a great phone, all have tons of content and get paper towels delivered really inexpensively, but where our wages are flat for five decades, okay, do we need to reevaluate priorities? Mm. I would argue that the pricing, or the prices we pay for these platforms has skyrocketed. And that is when we have a country where a lot of us wonder if uh, the elections were manipulated, that's an enormous price we all pay. When we worry about our 16-year-old daughters sitting in their room, knowing they weren't invited to a party, that's one thing. But seeing the party play out in real time, on their phones, as they're in their rooms alone, that's a price that my household pays. I'm worried that my son, my oldest son, who's 11, and does a handstand, and I video it, and he asks me to post it on YouTube, and then he gets a like. <laughs> and he says, can we check back in and see if I got more likes? <laughs> and then someone makes kind of a snarky comment about his video, and it really bums him out. And And Google responds, well, yeah, but your son can learn how to play the piano on YouTube. Yeah. There's some wonderful things about social media. But the addiction here, we know we're being manipulated.
0: That's an enormous price we all pay. That's Scott Galloway, professor at NYU's Stern School of Business. You can watch his full talk at TED.com. On the show today, ideas about digital manipulation. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz and you're listening to the Ted Radio Hour from NPR. Hey everyone, just a quick thanks to one of our sponsors who helps make this podcast possible. First to Capital One. Capital One knows life doesn't alert you about your credit card. That's why they created Eno, the Capital One assistant that catches things that might look wrong with your credit card, like over tipping, duplicate charges, or potential fraud, then sends an alert to your phone and helps you fix it. It's another way Capital One is watching out for your money when you're not. Capital One, what's in your wallet? See Capital One.com for details.
3: What if a story you've been told your whole life turned out to be a lie? This season on White Lies, we
1: revealed the truth of who killed James Reeb in Selma, Alabama in 1965 and dismantled the conspiracies that covered it up. But was finding the truth really enough? From
3: NPR, it's White Lies. You can binge all seven episodes now.
0: It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today ideas around digital manipulation. I mean, all design
1: is the art of manipulation. And it doesn't matter what type of design we're talking about, we're trying to engineer people's behavior. Hmm. uh, To do a particular behavior, to think a certain thought, uh, to feel a certain feeling. All design manipulates us. And to be honest, we pay for the privilege. This is Nir Ayal, and I basically study the intersection of psychology, technology, and business.
0: Nier actually consults for tech companies to help them create more engaging products, products that are really good at holding our attention. I am what you might call a behavioral designer. And to understand just how we get hooked, Nier points to a series of studies conducted in the 1940s by the psychologist B.F. Skinner. Skinner did some fascinating experiments where he
1: took these food pellets and he would give them to a pigeon in a box. I
5: will try to pick out some particular pattern of behavior.
1: And every time the pigeon pecked at the disc, they would receive a reward, a little food pellet. The
0: bird is already conditioned to eat when the magazine sounds. Okay, simple enough. The pigeon gets a reward.
1: And Skinner very quickly realized that as long as the pigeon was hungry, they would receive this food pellet and very quickly he could train them to peck the disc every time. But then, one day, Skinner ran out of those food pellets. He didn't have enough. And so he could only afford to give out the food pellets every once in a while. So, you know, one time he'd give out the food pellet and the pigeon would peck at the disc and they would receive one. The next time the pigeon would peck at the disc, they wouldn't receive a reward.
5: Perhaps every tenth time or perhaps only once every minute or something like that.
1: And when the schedule of reinforcement was variable, when there was some mystery around when the pigeon would receive the reward, the pigeon would peck at the disc more frequently. The rate of response increased. The more random the reward the more the pigeon pecked at the disc. This is called a variable reward. And so we see this mechanic in all sorts of things that we find most engaging, most habit-forming, the things that capture our attention. So, of course, online, when you think about the Facebook news feed or the Instagram feed or the LinkedIn feed, I mean, the feed is this masterful manifestation of a variable reward where to get more of these rewards, you just have to keep scrolling and scrolling and scrolling, searching for
0: more information. And so all those pings and dings and notifications, those are all triggers that tell us to go back for more until we're so hooked that we don't need those reminders anymore. Eventually, they start attaching their product's use
1: to an association inside our own heads. That's when the habit takes hold.
0: Nir picks up this idea from the TED stage.
1: Where do we go when we're feeling lonely? What app or website do we check? Facebook, of course. What about when we're unsure about something? Before we scan our brains to see if we know the answer, we're Googling it. And what about when we're feeling bored? Well, that's when people go onto YouTube or Reddit, check stock prices, sports scores, the front page news. And what we see happening today is that companies building habit-forming technologies are pushing that the easier behavior is to do,
0: the more likely we are to do it. So Nir, I mean, hearing this and, and you know, knowing that you help companies design some of these products, I mean, it almost feels like these things are deliberately designed to to addict us. So I think we do have to keep this in perspective.
1: You know, very few people who drink alcohol get addicted to alcohol, even though alcohol is a highly addictive substance. And so what we do when we pathologize this problem and call everything addictive is we're missing the point here. You know, we're, we're painting this tech boogeyman and we're giving these companies
0: more control, believe it or not, than they deserve. But, but is there an argument that some social media companies are trying to capitalize on our negative emotions to manipulate us into using their products more? I mean, would you agree that that is potentially the case, the reality? Guy, every human
1: behavior is prompted from a negative emotion. Everything we do is to escape discomfort. You know, Mm -hmm. the reason we sit down to watch television or read the newspaper is also because of discomfort. It's worry, it's fear, it's fatigue. That's the way products are designed is to solve our problems. It's such an easy story to say it's all the company's fault and they're doing it to us and they're hijacking our brains. But guess what? We have power over this. The fact is sitting here and and wringing our fists at these companies doesn't change anything.
0: Right. If we wait for the politicians to do something and hold our breath, we're going to suffocate. So just to be clear, I mean your view on, on all this is that we need to take personal responsibility for the decisions we make, and that um, we can't blame technology companies for attracting us, drawing us in, keeping us on their products. Ultimately, it's our own responsibility. We have to make that decision. So I think we're going through this adjustment period. Uh, Sophocles, the
1: Greek philosopher, said that nothing vast enters the life of mortals without a curse. And so many new technologies have a downside, and we're dealing with that downside today. And we're learning about how to use them appropriately. Sure. You know, when I sure. was growing up uh, in the 1980s, we had ashtrays all over our house. Now, my parents didn't smoke, and yet we had all these ashtrays because back then, if you walked into somebody's house you felt free to light up in their living room back when smoking rates were at 60% of the adult population. Today, they're at 16%. And if somebody came to my house and lit up a cigarette in my living room, I'd kick them out and we wouldn't be friends anymore. So the social norms
0: change, and we are currently learning those norms. Uh, the, the analogy with tobacco is an interesting one because other people in the program have made it, which has been, yes, that's right. There There was a transition period where we didn't really understand you know the effects of of tobacco. Um, and similarly, with social media, we don't fully understand it. But we regulated tobacco. and and therefore we could do the same with some of these social media companies and companies that collect vast amounts of data. Do you think that's a a, a fair comparison an argument? Well, remember, we're not freebasing Facebook. We're not injecting Instagram here.
1: Nothing is entering into the bloodstream. These are behaviors. These are habits, and habits can change. And so I, I think that, you know, again, there's so much we can do right now. Why would we wait? And I think there is a role for legislation for some things. I think that these companies' monopoly status needs to be looked at. I think that their use of data needs to be looked at. But for this specific problem
0: of tech overuse, this is our problem. This is something mm. we can do something about. But, I mean, if, as you as you say, like we all have agency, right, to just stop using these products, which I think a lot of people would disagree with <laughs> – um, I mean, do you even think that it's possible for us to be manipulated? Absolutely. So there's, there's two types of manipulation,
1: right? There's persuasion and coercion. Persuasion is helping people do something they want to do. Coercion is when we get people to do things they don't want to do. And coercion is always unethical. Now, what's the difference between persuasion and coercion? A simple test is regret, would the user regret using our product and service? Not only is it ethical, as I mentioned, but again, if, if you build a product that people regret using, they stop using your product. It's bad for business. And so it's not us to judge people. You know, Many parents today, that, oh, the video games, that's a terrible waste of time as they sit down on their couch and watch a football game. Is there anything that's morally superior to watching a football game than playing Candy Crush on your phone? It's difficult for me to say. And who am I to say to judge people? If that's how you want to spend
0: your pastime, uh, there's nothing wrong with it. I'm not a, a neuroscientist or a psychologist, right? But what I can say is that I, I fundamentally believe that people can make choices, but there are certainly choices that are made for people. Mm. Um, mm. And, and, I think, and I think, look, I'm not denying that you have a legitimate argument. You do. I just don't think it's that clear cut. Yeah. Well, I, I don't think it's easy necessarily.
1: I'm not pro-tech all the time. I'm for having a conversation so that we can use them with intent, use them the way we want to, as opposed to maybe the way these companies want us to. Hmm. If that's playing a video game, if that's spending time on Facebook, if that's listening to a radio program, wonderful. Spend that time with intent as opposed to letting other people control your behavior.
0: That's Nir Eyal. He's a behavioral designer. You can see his full talk at TED.com. Hello, Doug. Hello. Hello, Doug. It's Guy Raz here. How are you? Very good. How are you? Good. I am talking to the real Doug, right? This is real Doug, not digital Doug. You
6: know, before I started this, I did not realize how often I would be asked that question. <laughs> it, it's quite annoying at work. People keep poking me to make sure that I'm actually
0: there. This is Doug Roble, and Doug makes digital humans that look exactly like us. I'm not a real person.
3: I'm actually a copy of a real person, although I feel like a real person. It's it's kind of hard to explain. Hold on. I think I saw a real person. There's one. Let's bring him on stage.
0: Okay, so obviously, Doug, this is your voice on, on the TED stage. But because we're on the radio uh, and not on TV, can you, can you explain what, what's going on here? Well,
6: first of all, I'm wearing a motion capture suit. Then I'm also wearing a basically a bicycle helmet that has a camera and some lights attached to it. And the reason I'm wearing that is because I'm controlling
0: a digital version of me at the same time that I'm out on stage. Yeah, there's a giant screen, and we're just seeing you on the screen, but it is a, it's a version of you made up of ones and zeros.
6: It is. It's, I'm basically controlling a computer game character. What you see up there
3: is a digital human. We call him Digi-Doug. He's actually a 3D character that I'm controlling live, in real time.
0: And Doug makes more than just digital versions of himself. For nearly three decades, he's worked on creating digital effects and digital humans for the film industry.
6: The next step would be to do an entire film where one character is just a computer-generated character, who you just don't even realize is computer-generated.
0: At that point, the possibilities are presumably are, are endless, right? You could, you could have that character do whatever you want it to do.
6: Yeah, I mean, it opens up a lot of doors. Uh, it could be really cool.
0: Doug Robel and Digidug continue this idea from the TED stage.
3: We've been putting humans, and creatures into film that you accept as real. If they're happy, you should feel happy. And if they feel pain, you should empathize with them. If you were having a conversation with DigiDug one-on-one, is it real enough so that you could tell whether or not I was lying to you? So that was our goal. But why did we do this? First of all, it is just crazy cool. How cool is it? Well, with a push of a button, I can deliver this talk as a completely different character. This is Elbor. We put him together to test how this would work with a different appearance, right? <laughs> and the cool thing about this technology is that while I've changed my character, the performance is still
0: all me. Right in the middle of your talk, uh, so we're still seeing Digital Doug on the screen. You push a button, and then Digital Doug turns into a character named Elbor, who cause looks <laughs> like an Alfred or a troll. <laughs> but he's, he's mimicking, he's still you, like every turn of your head or micro-expression. Like Elbor is mimicking that. You become Elbor.
6: Yes. Um, we wanted to see how far we could push this technology. So here we're taking my motion, and I'm I'm over six foot tall, and we're transferring it onto this guy who's, uh, I think, about three foot six. So he's about half my size. It's just like, oh, look, I'm a little critter. And uh, you talk about inhabiting a character. I really inhabited that
0: character. <laughs> yeah. I mean, every teeny movement of your mouth, of your face, like Elbor was doing the same thing. And it was at at that point in your talk where I freaked out and not in a good way, Doug. I, I saw that and I thought, this is going to be used in a really scary way. Right then at that point when I saw you turn into Elbor, I thought, wow, we can inhabit anybody. We will be able to inhabit anyone and pretend like we are them.
6: We are entirely aware of this. This this is one of the big things with this technology is, is that it it presents so many neat opportunities, but at the exact same time, if we tr- created a digital double of somebody who is famous, and I put on the suit, and then all of a sudden I can control that famous person with my body and my face. That gets really really creepy and um, it gets really tricky that the one thing that's nice is to get a character of this quality right now the barrier is extraordinarily high it, it, when you say it you, you were flabbergasted by it when I see it all I see are the flaws and so there's there's still a level
0: of reality that we want to push it towards yeah I mean it's clear that we are heading there, that it will get perfect pretty soon, and at some point, the barrier will actually be pretty low to sort of getting in, into this. Um, when I was a kid, there was a film that freaked me out. In the year 2017, and it it's is- called The Running Man, and it was implausible, it was uh, based around a prison.
5: It's a game between life and death.
0: And Arnold Schwarzenegger was a prisoner in The Running Man, and you know the object was to escape uh, being hunted down, and then you know killed. Yep. He was in this prison because he was framed for committing a massacre, and they they made a fake video that showed him killing people. Um. And and when I was a kid and you watched it, you thought oh, that's just implausible. How could you ever do that? And and when I was watching your TED talk, I had a flashback to that movie. Yeah. Because as absurd as it was in the 80s or in the 90s, it's actually happening. We've already seen politicians' videos being manipulated. We just saw it not too long ago with the Speaker yep. of the House. And that was an easy manipulation. And even
6: if you did have a, a super good way of detecting these things, it, it's going to take time. And especially with the Internet now and everything, and if a, a video like that goes out, and it has a day or two to run around the world unmolested, if you come out later and say, oh no, that was a fake video, people have moved on already and they've the damage is done. It's uh, hopefully people will have this nice dose of skepticism whenever they look at something and say, where's the source? Is this really what happened? I think that's key because It's going to be really, really hard to stop.
0: That's Doug Robel. He's a computer graphics researcher with Digital Domain. You can see Doug's full talk at TED.com. Thanks for listening to our show about digital manipulation this week. If you want to find out more about who was on it, go to ted.npr.org. And to see hundreds more TED Talks, check out ted.com or the TED app. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Mishkanpour, Neva Grant, Casey Herman, Rachel Faulkner, Diba Motasham, James Delahousie, and JC Howard, with help from Daniel Shukin and Brent Bachman. Our intern is Emmanuel Johnson. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, Anna Phelan, and Janet Lee. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR.